I love that we preach through books of the Bible that we've been preaching through Revelation. And when we get to texts like today's that we're not just like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Let's skip over it. We're going to talk about it and we're going to use the language that the Bible uses so that we actually feel what we're supposed to feel. Sound good? Love it. Now that we know it's going to be heavy and deep, um, I just want to say it's hard for me to teach a text like this. If you know me well, you know that I'm typically pretty lighthearted. I love to laugh and I love humor, but today's text is not that type of text. And so I don't want to be tone deaf to what scripture is actually calling us to feel and to think and to say. I want to match the tone of our text today. So if you walk out of here and you're like, wow, I didn't laugh today at church. It's because you shouldn't have. Okay. So we know we're going deep. We're going to talk about your spiritual appetite, your spiritual appetite. And when I hear the word appetite, I'm pretty quick to just think of food. Anybody with me? Okay. Yep. When I hear appetite, I think food. Uh, It certainly is a word used for food, but it's used for so much more. And I personally think about food because a huge part of my story revolves around the sport of wrestling. And during my wrestling career, I actually, for four years of my life, struggled with eating disorders. So both anorexia and bulimia, this idea that like food is either you know, a prize or a reward to indulge in, or it's an evil to avoid. And that's heavy, right? Like, though I don't struggle with anorexia or bulimia today, it has shaped my relationship with food. And I think the hard thing about having a distorted view of food is that you have to participate in the essential elements of human life, like eating, right? So every time I sit down at a dinner table... It's like I'm dancing with temptation. This idea of like, Jordan, are you going to view food the way that God created it? Or are you going to twist and distort it to serve yourself? And I don't claim to know your relationship with food. uh, But I think you actually understand a little bit about what I feel when it comes to how can I eat food but not be overcome by it? Because Jesus uses two paradigms in the Gospels that actually kind of bring us in on this feeling. The first is in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus says that you are, talking about the church, Christians, you are a light in the darkness. And then in John 17, his high priestly prayer, he prays to his Father in heaven. He says, Father, keep them in the world, but remind them that they are not of the world. And so... Just like me sitting at a dinner table of, hey, how do I eat food but not be overcome by it? We're asking as Christians, how do I live amongst darkness but not be overcome by it? Or how do I live in the world but not become overcome by worldliness? And so when it comes to your spiritual appetite, the question is, how do you resist and overcome the allure for worldliness? Because it's attractive. It's competing for your appetite, your spiritual worship. The world is. And so today we're going to be in Revelation 17. If you have a physical Bible, I'm going to encourage you, use it. Otherwise, use your Bible app. There's going to be a lot of stuff we don't cover today, but things that I want to be able to point out to us. And if you are new with us this morning, I'm not going to apologize. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, This is a heavy text for you to 
come into. And it could be a confusing text to come into as well. We're in the 11th week of our Revelation series. You're jumping in towards the tail end of the book. And I want to just set the stage so that if you're new, you don't think we're absolutely crazy. All right? Because what we're about to talk about is pretty crazy. So, Revelation written by the Apostle John to a suffering and persecuted church that is being crushed and killed and oppressed and he's writing to, to stir their affections and to empower them to remain faithful. He's telling them, hey, in the, in the end, Jesus wins, right? God is sovereign. God is on the throne. Nothing is outside of his control. Stay faithful. I'm going to punish evil. These are the common themes and threads that we see over and over again in Revelation. But this is a confusing book for a variety of reasons. One... A lot of it is apocalyptic literature. John is getting a vision, and he's just trying to explain to us what he sees. But secondly, this book is filled with Old Testament references. And I don't know about you, but I am not an Old Testament scholar. (laughs) And statistics would tell me that if we are the most biblically illiterate generation that America has ever seen, we're also going to struggle with this text. So... As I look at Revelation 17, my Bible has a heading that says, The Great Prostitute and the Beast. That's where we're going to go today. So we're going to just look at the first six verses of chapter 17 and unpack it a little bit. Go ahead and read with me. The Word of God says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup, full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So we're introduced to these two characters. One is the beast. And if you were with us three weeks ago, we talked about who this beast was in Revelation 13. We identified the beast as any political sphere that has been perverted to use its power to rebel against God. Now, in this audience, the original audience, they are looking at the beast and they clearly say, this is Rome. Now, they're also looking back at Daniel 7, when Daniel identified the beast as Babylon. So, original audience looks at it and they say, okay, this is not just Babylon, and it's not just Rome, but it's any political sphere that is abusing its power to rebel against God. We talked about why it was Rome in Revelation 13, but I think there's also a couple references In Revelation 17, in verse 8, you catch another reference to this like false resurrection. It says the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. 
this false resurrection that we saw in Revelation 13, that the beast kind of lives out to try and prompt and provoke worship. But also, in verse 9, it says that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And contextually speaking, the original audience knew that Rome was a city that was built geographically amongst seven mountains. So they look at the beast and they clearly say, okay, this is Rome. But as you and me know, there's still political spheres that are perverted and rebelling against God. Am I right? Yes. So the beast lives on. But I want to talk today more specifically about the great prostitute who in our text is identified as Babylon. And I think two things that are helpful for us to know before we really begin to unpack who this prostitute is, is that she is actually cast alongside in Revelation 19, this character called the Bride of Christ, which is the church, God's redeemed people. And so you use language here in Revelation that's bride, like marriage covenant language, contrasted with a prostitute. And this is very common in the Old Testament. If you look at how God would frequently look back at his people who he called to himself Israel, seen as a bride, refined, purified for God's possession. And then in her adulterous state, when Israel turns their back on God, that he would call her an adulteress. To say, you are forsaking a covenant to pursue other lovers. And that's seen through multiple Old Testament prophets. So this language, though, is strong, is not unfamiliar to the original audience. They kind of understand what's being said. But for you and me, we don't use this language frequently. And I will say, the imagery is strong. It's repulsive. Talked with a guy this morning who said, I read this this week, and it made me want to, like, take a bath. It's sickening. It's like, yes, we're, we're getting now a feel for what we should feel. That sin is disgusting. And participating with worldliness is disgusting. Which is the second point that Babylon is identified here. But it's not just a literal city. Because you might be thinking today, well great, I live in America. I, at least I don't live in Babylon. Hate to break it to you. This applies to us more than you might think. Because Babylon, if you remember in our Genesis series, originates in Genesis 11, where God has told his people, go and make much of me, make my fame go to the ends of the earth. And here's what they did. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us build a name for ourselves. Let's make life all about us, not about God. That is Babylon. And I'm telling you, today, it is any form of worldliness that is centered on self, self-glorifying, self-justified, and rebellious against God. And what we see in Revelation 17... If you even just look at the opening verses, it says the great prostitute is seated on many waters. And the waters are a symbol of power. And so every country, every continent, every government, every culture is being invaded by this allure 
to worldliness. And here's what I know to be true, Veritas. As I look at this text and as I just lift my eyes and look at the world around me, Babylon is attractive. Worldliness is seducing us. And in this text, swooning kings and kingdoms and people to just come and participate in what she is offering. There's the allure of power and luxury and her appeal is one of pleasure. Right? You think of this like sexual immorality language to say, hey, just come. Come and participate. Let me, let me offer you pleasure. And I know that she's attractive because the Apostle John from the island of Patmos is getting a vision from God. And you see in verse 6 that even he says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And if that's true of him, it's also true of us. I mean, an angel has to come to him in verse 7 and say, why do you marvel? Like, get your eyes up. Get your eyes off of her. And here's just what's true. This illustration, this imagery of a prostitute is offering us this self-feeding, self-glorifying pleasure that is stripped away from covenant relationship. To go and participate in sexual activity without real commitment, without real relational intimacy, and sure, it might please you for a moment, but it will not last And it lacks the real joy that covenant brings. And so, Christians in the room, I just want to say, I am concerned about worldliness in the church. I am concerned. Especially in today's day and age, there's this like cool, hip Christian subculture that in so many ways it's like, yeah, come as you are. And I love, like, I love that we can come as we are, that we're not here to fake it. Hear me when I say that. But that we have began to look so much like the world around us that we don't actually stand out. That's concerning. And I just want to talk about a couple different ways that I think we just fit in with the rest of the world. More as a cautionary tale for us. So the first is what I would like to call silent idols. Silent idols. These things that are good gifts from God that we have just taken and have put on the throne of our hearts. And so, when you think about where you find pleasure or where you find rest, what comes to mind? Do you think about God or do you think about the world? Do you think about food and drink, how you're going to unwind with a beer or a glass of wine? Do you think about all-inclusive vacations that you want to book? Do you think about binging shows, scrolling your phone? Where do you find pleasure or rest? Because scripture would say, here's what the covenant offers. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That God offers something that lasts. Or here's what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, hey, I can actually give you rest that lasts. Far better than scrolling on your smartphone. So do you look to the world or do you look to Christ? And then let's talk about purpose and security. You know, these identity things that, again, God has given us good gifts, but we have twisted and distorted them. So 
Is your identity the sport you play, the school you go to, the job you have, how many hours you work? Like you just can't help but tell people how busy you are. Is your security found in the money you make, the possessions you own, or your investment accounts? Because I'm here to tell you, those will not last. You're settling for a lesser joy. You're putting something that is meant to be good and making it a God. And so I'm not here to tell you all of these things are bad. Like, please do not go cancel your insurance plan right now. Okay? What I am saying is, it's not wrong to have them, but it's wrong for them to have you. And on this identity statement, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, him to, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There is no better identity or purpose than that. To say, I have been redeemed by God, and now God is going to redeem other people by him working in and through me. That is amazing. That is all you need, and it lasts. Psalm 46.1, security. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He can offer you security that lasts. And so there's so many things that we just accept today that maybe we shouldn't. But I also want to talk about the clear cultural forms of deception that are happening in the church. And one of the great things for me is that I don't have to make these up. I just have to look at this text. The timeless truth of scripture that applied to the church back then and applies to the church today. We see three things. Number one, the focus on self. I mean, Babylon. Self-made, self-focused, live your own truth. It's happening. And it's not just out there, it's in here. This consumeristic culture that says, hey, I want to choose a church that meets my interests. I want to come and see what they have to offer me. I want to see if their preferences meet my preferences. And the second that challenge comes or rebuke comes, it's like, nope, I'm going to leave. I want to go somewhere else. Or even this like self-righteous religiosity that says, I don't care what other people think about me as long as I know what's happening. That is contrary to scripture. That does not match the way of Jesus. And here's some, cons- here's some concerns that I find. 45%, statistically speaking, 45% of regular church attenders have never volunteered to serve their local church. That's where like Andrew's announcement today is not meant to like shame you, but invite you in to wage war against worldliness. To say, hey, come give of yourself. Stop serving yourself in self-sacrifice. That is the way of Jesus. But maybe even more concerning than that, I hope this hurts you as much as it hurts me. Studies show that about 85% of Christians in a typical church do not have much of a prayer life. That's tough. You want to talk about self-made, self-focused. It's a prayerless life. Right? You're, You're living as though you don't need God. You're failing to treat God as who he is. That is the mark of prayerlessness. All right, second, sexual immorality. I mean, it's repeated time and time again in this text. 
I mean, the, the image that we get is one of a prostitute. Just shy of 70% of church-going men watch porn on a regular basis. This industry that is not only self-feeding, but is fueling the sex trade across the world. And 70% of church-going men participate? Not to mention a drastically rising rate of women that are participating? That is a concern. And a relatively new survey by Pew Research says that more than half of Christians in America say that casual sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed romantic relationships is either sometimes or always acceptable. That immoral sex is not just something that's happening outside the walls of the church, but is happening amongst us. That is a problem. And lastly, the love of money. I mean, when you look at the prostitute and you look at her array of purple and scarlet, these are like pictures of royalty. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She's holding a golden cup. This love of money. And I want to say, if, you, if this is your first time, we are not frequently up here preaching money, okay? I know that is a frequent church hurt that all the church does is talk about money. That is not the case here. But when the text lends itself to confront our financials, we're going to talk about it. And this is a clear opportunity to say, church, do you love money? Are you a lover of money? Not do you have wealth, but have you fallen in love with your money? We live in a day and age where it is just so culturally acceptable to say, oh yeah, I'm a sneakerhead," meaning you spend thousands of dollars on shoes a year. You always have to have the newest and greatest technology. I mean, the fact that people own multiple vacation homes. It's like, this is just like the norm today. 33% of United States born-again Christians say it is impossible for them to get ahead in life because of the debt they have incurred. That is not different than the rest of the world. That we are in just as much debt for living beyond our means. A third of regular church attendees gave little or no money to the furthering of the mission of their local church in the last year. And the average donation by adults who attend United States Protestant churches is approximately $17 a week. Which I would say most people when they get really honest with themselves, are spending potentially more on coffee than you are on the mission of God. That's concerning. And when you look back at Revelation, there's a church that I just want to warn us against becoming. It's the church in Laodicea, who in Revelation 3.17, Jesus says, You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. I just pray that God would not come against us and say that. Because we recognize that the love of money is like enticing and is seductive, but actually actually leads us in a broken place. Maybe you've heard this quote before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Say that again. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's just true. But it's attractive. 
right? When I sit down at the dinner table and I see a Pizza Hut pizza, I'm thinking, man, I'm about to smash that thing, right? Like, and I'm not talking one slice. I'm saying, like, give me the whole thing. But it's not going to lead to good, I'm telling you. To overindulge and to lead to destruction. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation 17 when it comes to worldliness. Read with me, verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, and the Lamb will conquer them. The Lamb will conquer the beast, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Like evil self-destructs. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Strong language. It's actually ripped right out of Ezekiel 16. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Worldliness leads to destruction. And quick destruction. I mean, a couple different places in Revelation 17 and 18, you see reference to like, in one hour or in one day, like, everything that you have worked so hard for can come crashing down in a moment. It will be destroyed. Worldliness leads to destruction. And when you get into chapter 18 you begin to see kind of the implications of Babylon's fall. Don't worry. We're not going to read all of Revelation 18. You're thinking, how are we going to get out of here before 2 o'clock? Okay? I want to just set Revelation 18 up for you so that you can better understand what you're reading. All right? The first three verses and the last four verses actually kind of bookend Revelation 18, which are pronouncing judgment over Babylon. Just saying, judgment is coming. It's like a promise. This is what is going to happen. But in verses 4 through 20, we actually see what results from the judgment. And I want to do what we've done here before these last few weeks, is just look at different responses to judgment. On one hand, from the righteous, the people of God, those who have trusted in Jesus, and the other side, from the unrighteous, the people who have given their lives and their souls and their appetites to the ways of this world. So first, let's look at what God says to the righteous. I want to just look at, again, a couple bookends. Verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is looking back at Jeremiah 51, Isaiah 48, And obviously, Genesis 11, the sins are stacked to the heavens. And this call to say, church, come out, like leave Babylon, stop participating in the ways of this world. And I think it's amazing, number one, that this is an invite, like look at the mercy of God that he has come to us and he says, I am going to judge worldliness And you have the opportunity to flee and get out. How merciful is God to a rebellious people who have gone astray? He says, no, come back. 
And what we know as we continue to read Revelation is that he's not just calling us out of Babylon. He's calling us to a better city. Revelation 22, a new Jerusalem. That we have a better inheritance that is actually going to last in heaven. But it is a command, church. Though it's an invitation, it is a command. Come out. Stop participating in the ways of this world. And what we've seen happen from generations past to where we are today is cultural sins that once were avoided were then tolerated and now today are being celebrated. What once was avoided was once tolerated and now is celebrated. And God is beckoning with us, please come out of Babylon. Come back to your faithful covenant-keeping bridegroom who is Jesus Christ. But on the other bookend, verse 20 says this, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. It's a call to worship. It's like, yes, come out, but also you can worship when the world is destroyed. Why? Because your greatest prize in God lasts. He wins. Even if everything else on this earth is taken away from you and you still have God, you have reason to rejoice. God lives. And he's enacting his justice on a world that is killing Christians. And in a world that killed him. So we have right reason to rejoice. But that's not what happens for the rest of the world. If you were to read verses 9 through 19, here's the common theme and thread. Weeping, wailing, and mourning. When Babylon is destroyed, when worldliness is taken away, the people of this earth who have given themselves to the prostitute are weeping. And it's not because they really love the prostitute. It's because they love themselves. And because she is gone and she can no longer offer them what they want because they can no longer satisfy themselves, they are left weeping. And I want you to see two things. Verse 14 says, The fruit for which your soul longed, like the fruit for which your spiritual appetite is so longing for, has gone from you. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. There is no hope of ever being satisfied or fulfilled because they're gone. And that's not it. Revelation 18, 21 and 22. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, also seen in Jeremiah 51, and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. That's pretty crazy in a book that is full of worship. Like to constantly get a peek behind the curtain of what's happening in heaven and the constant rejoicing, the constant playing of music, right? In Revelation 14, the harps continue to play a new song and it says, here's what's going to happen to the world's worship. Silenced. Nothing left to worship because it's gone. It's destroyed. And this, in a right sense, actually should instill a holy fear in us. Fear that's not meant to crush us, but to motivate us. 
and to say, hey, if we have fallen in love with the world, we will be left weeping and wailing and mourning. We don't want to do that. And the best news is, we don't have to do that. Because we have a God that lasts, right? Revelation 17, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. Jesus is victorious. He will last. If you look into Revelation 19, the first few verses, you're going to see, hey, here's what keeps happening. The people of God keep worshiping because he is a God that lasts. And so I don't know about you. I have flashbacks when I read this to Genesis 2 and 3. That God is like, hey, Adam and Eve, here's what I'm asking you to do. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not do it. If you do, you're going to die. But then in Revelation 3, verse 6, what does it say? It says, it looks appealing. It looked good to their eye. And as they tasted, they experienced death. They were kicked out of the garden. And so I'm telling you, Just as Genesis 2 is this invitation to walk closely with God, to remain in covenant with him, Genesis 3 is this stark warning to say, hey, if you bite the allure of culture, you will die. You will be destroyed. We need to remember that. So how do we live in the world, but not of the world? How do we overcome this allure, this enticement, this seduction that the world has to offer? You could say it this way. Overcome the allure of worldliness by living for what lasts. By living for what lasts. And I can't help but think of John 4, the woman of Samaria who comes to the well in the heat of the day, time and time again in her shame, scooping for more and more water that will leave her thirsty again. And Jesus comes to her and he says, hey, why do you keep coming here? And he creates this contrast between a well and a spring of life. And he says, hey, I have living water that I can give you so that you will never thirst again. Stop thirsting for the things of this world. Come to me because I can actually satisfy you. And you could flip no more than two pages in your Bible. Get to John 6 where Jesus has fed the 5,000. Now men chase him down to the other side of the sea and they're like, give us more bread. And what does he say? I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will no longer hunger anymore. This invite to say, stop settling for worldly satisfaction and satisfy yourself and he who lasts, who is the person and work of Christ. And so... I want to come back to this food analogy, all right? When it comes to overcoming food, there's two things that I need to do when I sit down at a dinner table. And both of them are centered around what is the purpose of food? Number one, the purpose of food is to point me to God with its taste. So you see in scripture multiple times, I mean, Psalm 34, eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Like when I eat food, I'm meant to remind myself This food cannot satisfy me, but God can. And it's a good thing that food tastes good. I might eat a slice of Pizza Hut later. Who knows? I'm not going to eat the whole thing, hopefully. (laughs) Right? Like, taste is one thing, but the second is this. It's fuel. It's fuel for my body. 
And my entire life is meant to serve God. So yes, taste and see that the Lord is good, but also remember that it's fuel. And if it's going to destroy you, it's not good fuel. So how does it help you stay healthy and serve the Lord? Now, let's cross the bridge and say, how does that apply to us? Like, what is the purpose of the world around us? How do we live in the world, but not of the world? Well, what's the purpose of the world? I would say, number one, it is to show you your need for God. Like, when you see brokenness around you, when you read the news headlines, it's meant to be this, like, shocking and stark reality that, like, we need a Savior. We need God to come and redeem us. But also, as you look out at the world, whether it's your neighborhood, your workplace, your campus, maybe even your family, you're also meant to be reminded that he wants you to live on mission with him. Like you're in the world, but not of the world because he wants to use you to reach the people around you for you to be light in the darkness. It's this great invitation to say, man, we need to stand out, but not in a way that is self-seeking, but in a way that people look at us and they say, wow, they must have a great God. That's what it means to be salt and light, that people would see us and they would glorify who? Us? No, they would give glory to our Father in heaven. So I want to give you three application points. Maybe you start with one, but maybe you do all three. Okay, the first, how do we apply a text like this? We need to examine. We need to actually take a hard look at our lives and say, God, in what ways am I compromising? In what ways am I looking elsewhere to be fulfilled in a way that only you can fulfill me? Or if there is clear and utter rebellion in your life to accept Michael's invitation last week from Revelation 17 and say, I need to repent because God's wrath is coming. And it's real. To understand that you are storing up wrath that God will one day punish. But you have this invitation to come out of the darkness and to live in the light. Examine. Second is this. Fast. Now, I'm going to guess most of you in this room have probably never fasted. And that's concerning to me because when Jesus teaches about fasting, he doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. This is a rich practice that has been passed down through generations of the church and is missing today. I mean, at best, sometimes we see it in this season we're in called Lent. And it's this like false form of fasting where it's like, oh, I'll give up soda for three months only to smash a 12 pack when you get done with Easter. It's like, no, you're missing the point. Fasting is meant to rob us of things that we think we need so that we actually realize what we do need. And so maybe that looks like fasting from food once a week. Maybe that means fasting from your smartphone or from social media or from watching sports, from giving up Netflix. These things that have just fed you that you're like, oh, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have it. I read this quote the other day that says, if you can't rest from it, then you are a slave to it. And that's pretty confronting. What is God asking you to rest from so that you can find fulfillment in him? And then lastly, to come to the word of God. Right? The word of God that endures forever 
It lasts. The truth of scripture actually can penetrate our hearts today, just like it did yesterday, and just like it will forevermore. That we can look at a book of Revelation written almost 2,000 years ago and say, oh, this still matters to me today. How do we begin to like, not just read this, but meditate on it? To take the lies of culture, the seduction of culture, and say, but what does God's word actually say? And how can I think about that more throughout my week? Pick one verse or one passage to just speak the truth to yourself. And I think if we live this out, Veritas, all that comes to mind for me, I mean, it's, it's a pretty compelling vision for us is a church that lasts, right? As we follow a God that endures forever, that we would be people that endure forever, right? That we would be alongside the lamb who is doing all the fighting for us. He will conquer, but he brings with him those who are called and chosen and faithful that we would be amongst that number. But I don't want it to just be about us. I mean, that's a pretty Babylon-based approach. Like, yeah, just make me be redeemed. No, but that we would say, God, like, keep us, help us last and endure so that we can leave these doors week after week, month after month, year after year, and bring more people into salvation who will last. We can tell more people that they have been settling for a smaller hope and introduce them to the person work of Jesus. Amen? All right, pray with me. Father, I just, <clears throat> yeah, I confess that this, this text is hard and is confronting and in so many ways, the first several times that I read over it, I just felt, <clears throat> I felt your heavy hand on my life. Um, and it's uncomfortable, but um, you tell us in Hebrews that you are a good father who knows how to discipline your children. And though you can be firm in your discipline, you can rebuke us into obedience. You do that with such gentleness and compassion. Because your discipline is not meant to break us, but to bring us back to you. And that's my prayer, God, for Veritas Church. That we would wake up to the ways that we have settled for worldliness. And that we would come back, come back, return to the God who loves us. I'm reminded of the prophet Hosea. God, who you had Mary an adulteress and Gomer. And it's meant to be this very pointed picture that that is exactly who you are. You married a bride that would turn her back on you. But your love chases us down. Your love stays faithful. You are committed to your people. So thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God. And I pray that in light of your love for us, Jesus, we would turn from our wicked ways and love you all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.